This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you politics at the boring bits Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. Now, a special episode of the podcast today after all that party conference nonsense. As you may have picked up uh, recently, I've got a book coming out this week. It's called Planes, Trains and Toilet Doors, 50 Places That Change British Politics. So we thought on the pod today we'd just bring you a sort of documentary about some of the places that I've been. I need to tell you Tom Hanks is alarm goes off at 5am. Tom Hanks sits up in bed in blue pyjamas. Tom Hanks says, I really want to stop, but I just got a taste for it. Tom Hanks checks the bags under his eyes in the bathroom mirror. Tom Hanks drinks water. Tom Hanks is walking down the street, pointing and waving and high-fiving and fist-bumping in brown leather gloves. Tom Hanks signs an autograph, is given a table tennis bat and hits a ping-pong ball out of shot. Tom Hanks poses for selfies, hails a taxi, makes calls and reads texts. Tom Hanks watches as a bright yellow car drives past in slow motion. Tom Hanks dances in the street. Now, imagine all of that, but instead of Tom Hanks, it's Nick Clegg. And instead of the streets of Manhattan, it's the streets of Gravesend on an overcast day in March 2015. The Lib Dems were facing electoral wipeout after five years in coalition with the Conservatives, having tried everything to turn the party's fortunes around, a plan was hatched for Nick Clegg to star in a shot-for-shot recreation of the video for I Really Like You by the Canadian singer Carly Rae Jepsen, which originally starred Tom Hanks walking the streets and lip-syncing. Which is why Windmill Street, Gravesend, is included in my new book, Planes, Trains and Toilet Doors, 50 Places That Changed British Politics. Although, Strictly speaking, the Lib Dems never released the video. Maybe they should have done. They went on to slump from 57 MPs to just eight. It was a press release of English heritage which set me off in search of the weird local places that have changed British politics. It boasted that there had been a 20% surge in visitors to Barnard Castle in 2021, thanks to their recent celebrity ambassador Dominic Cummings and his lockdown-breaking shenanigans. That's a lot of people walking around making eye test jokes. Well, brilliant Times Radio listeners started sending in other ideas for obscure places which changed British politics. So many of the key turning points which decided who runs the country and doesn't and how they run it 
or don't, have taken place not in the mock Gothic crumbling courtyards of the Palace of Westminster or the higgledy-piggledy terraced houses of Downing Street, nor in the windowless halitosis hotspots of party conferences. Instead, they've played out in towns and cities and villages across the country. Unlikely, often humdrum places where accidents happen that change everything. So, I thought this tour should probably start back where it all began. Barnard Castle is a sort of posh market town you get across the north of England. Nestled on the banks of the River Tees, it's named after and built around the medieval castle ruin of Barnard Castle. The town centre has got all of the high street names you'd expect, with a good smattering of independent shops. And the town was minding its own business when Dominic Cummings brought his family here in April 2020. They'd normally welcome visitors, but you might remember that back then there was a pandemic on, and he really shouldn't have been here. It was here on the banks of the River Tees on April the 12th, 2020, that Dominic Cummings parked up for a little rest. He and his family had driven the 30 miles from his family home on the outskirts of Durham to Barnard Castle, the town. He insisted, of course, that he did not visit the castle, uh, but he couldn't have done because it was shut because there was a pandemic on. But they parked up by the river, they discussed the situation, and then Dominic Cummings felt a bit sick. So he walked along the riverbank, sat here for 10, 15 minutes, and then went back to the car. All perfectly harmless, he might say, but when details of it emerged more than a month later, it had a devastating effect on trust in the government and in the pandemic response. The weird thing, of course, about Dominic Cummings and Barnard Castle is he was only here, as is so often the case with a political scandal. It's not the technicalities or the legalities that people remember. It's the colourful detail. So few remember that Dominic Cummings drove to his in-laws on the outskirts of Durham, but everyone remembers that having recovered from COVID, he decided to drive the 30 miles south to Barnard Castle to test his eyesight. My wife was very worried, particularly given my eyesight had seemed to, seemed to have been affected by the disease. She did not want to risk a nearly 300 mile drive with our child, given how ill I had been. We agreed that we should go for a short drive to see if I could drive safely. We drove for roughly half an hour and ended up on the outskirts of Barnard Castle Town. And so from down at the river, it's about a five, five minute walk up into the town, uh, past the, well, perhaps Britain's most photographed opticians. It's the uh, Barnard Castle branch of Specsavers. Slightly unfairly, actually, it's one of two uh, opticians. Uh, Bayfields is also uh, just across uh, the road and down the way. But there is the grey exterior of the uh, the Barnard Castle branch of Specsavers right on the high street. Uh, but now I think I've had a very busy busy morning on the spot reporting uh, for Times Radio. So uh, I think having come to the site where Dominic Cummings was seen and changed the pandemic forever. Next, uh, I think I'm going to nip into a cafe and in honour of it being where Dominic Cummings was seen. I'm going to have a lovely bowl of spotted dick. With custard. So we leave Barnard Castle behind. As part of my research of places that changed politics, I've gone deep into the archives and deeper still into one particular swimming pool. Blue moon, blue moon. 
Oh, so I think this is the first time I've ever done an item on the radio uh, from a swimming pool. But this is not just any swimming pool. This is the swimming pool at Clifton House where John Profumo first met Christine Keeler. Uh, he was the Secretary of State for War. She was a 19-year-old, a uh, friend of Stephen Ward, who was a masseuse to the stars and royalty. This was on a hot summer's evening in 1961 that John Profumo and Christine Keeler met at this very pool. Stephen Wards had invited Christine and his friends to stay in Spring Cottage on the Clifton Estate, which Lord Astor gave him use of. And Ward and Keeler had decided to come in and have a swim. It was about 10.30 when Lord Astor brought his friends out. He was having a big dinner party. Uh, various big names there. Lord Mountbatten, the war hero. Prince Philip's uncle, of course. Various businessmen, socialites. And John Profumo and his film star wife. Some suggestion they came out to look at this statue, at the uh, bronze statue, just at the end of the pool, of a boy sitting on the back of a fish, riding on the back of a fish, well, about three foot high. Anyway, they all came out in their dinner suits and ball gowns to take a look at it. And the story goes, it was John Profumo rounded the corner first, around the, the high walls around this pool. He caught a glimpse of Christine Keeler in a state of undress. But the stories vary somewhat. Was she skinny dipping? Had she lost her costume because she'd borrowed it and it was too big? Had Stephen Ward hidden it? But for whatever reason, she was rushing to get a toweler, wet feet leaving footprints on the terracotta red herringbone bricks around the pool, which is still here today. She dashes for a towel to cover her modesty. And it's from there the affair began. But then questions start being asked. Rumours start swirling. Perfumo sends a note. Beginning with Darling tells her basically he can't see her for a long time and it's all off. Keeler gets in trouble with the police, as does Stephen Ward. Rumours bubble up in the papers and in the House of Commons about a minister and a core girl. And so, exactly 60 years ago, on March the 22nd, 1963, John Profumo got up in the Commons and said this. My wife and I first met Miss Keeler at a house party in July 1961 at Cliveden. Among a number of people there was Dr Stephen Ward, whom we already knew slightly, and a Mr Ivanov, who was an attaché at the Russian Embassy. Between July and December 1961, I met Miss Keeler on about half a dozen occasions at Dr Ward's flat, when I called to see him and his friends. Miss Keeler and I were on friendly terms. There was no impropriety whatsoever in my acquaintanceship with Miss Keeler. I shall not hesitate to issue writs for libel and slander if scandalous allegations are made or repeated outside the house. Well, within months it was proved that that, that was a lie. That he had indeed had an affair with Christine Keeler. Uh, Lord Denning's report into the whole affair in late 1963 was so salacious, it became a bestseller. There was no actual proof uh, that Evgeny Ivanov, the uh, Soviet spy, had gained anything from Christine Keeler, uh, apart from the obvious. Uh, Stephen Ward committed suicide. Uh, John Fumo was eventually forced to resign from the government. It was a real test case in politics and British society generally. 
in the 1960s, the swinging 60s had got underway. And the old guard, the old conservative guard, was struggling to keep up uh, with what was going on. Previously, affairs between cabinet ministers and young models would have gone unreported. And it's just a reminder that sometimes events happen in the most unlikely of places. And yet in British politics, they end up making a very big splash. This is Matt Jolly taking on a tour of some of the places which changed politics. Still to come, it gets boozy, the shop where number 10 staff filled a suitcase with booze, and the pub where David Cameron left his daughter and Ted Heath misplaced his majority. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is Matt Chorley on a whistle-stop tour of Britain, diving into my new book, 50 Places That Change British Politics. Alcohol and politics have always mixed. Just ask Kwasi Kwarteng, who found out he was being sacked as Chancellor by Liz Truss when he was in the back of his ministerial car, reading Twitter, right next to Fuller's Brewery on the corner of the M4 and A4 in Chiswick. My view about last year's events is that I, I think it was a very difficult time. I think there was a bit of panic. And I mean, clearly Liz Truss thought by sacking me, she would prolong her political life. But she resigned six days later. So that, that didn't work for her. And I think, you know, she went from quite, you know, overconfidence perhaps to, to terror-stricken panic uh, looking back. And I was very upset to, 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 be, to be dismissed. I think Rishi Sunak has done a good job in, in stabilising. The booze keeps flowing, though, so it's off to the shops. It was here on the 16th of April 2021 that after running out of booze at a Downing Street party which breached lockdown rules, someone came here with one of these to fill it with booze. It became one of the most iconic features of the Partygate story, so I'm going to find out just how easy it is uh, to fill a suitcase full of wine. Oh, good thing is, sort of nicely out of the way, so there's no one who needs to see just how much wine you're buying. Uh, maybe a nice Sauvignon. Uh, New Zealand. Oh yeah, this is what we want. We'll have a couple of those. And maybe a couple of those. Yes. I'm going to pay for it, don't worry. I'm not going to run off. Okay. I promise. Okay. I'm just putting it. I want to see how much I can fit in a suitcase. As if he's not seen someone doing this before. Oh, there's a pound off on that one. That looks posh. It's got some gold on the label. I don't really know what one... T- How many is that? Two, four, six bottles of wine. 
and get another one in there. Let's have a red, just in case there's, you know, a show-off who works in the number 10 press office. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're good, look. Got some money off on those. Oh, yeah, that fits. All right, good. Zip that up. I can make a run for it. Not really. I am going to pay for it. I am going to pay for it. Well, that is quite heavy now. I hope they didn't just send one person up here to do this. Shall I pay you here or do it there? It turns out it's not very convenient at all carrying wine in this fashion under it again. There's two two of each, I think, yeah. I'll do that like that. Oh, lovely. That's it, thank you. I suspect our number 10 friends didn't spend £71 on wine. They might have gone something a bit cheaper. Well, I don't know, maybe they were claiming it back on, on the taxpayer. Thank you very much. Zip it up. Oh, no, I'm holding up the queue now. Oh, zip up the suitcase. And then let's get out. So that was in and out of uh, co-op in five minutes, but let's see how long it takes now to walk down to Downing Street while wheeling the suitcase of wine. Right, stop the watch. That is eight and a half minutes of walking fairly leisurely from the co-op uh, to Downing Street. Although I think actually whoever was in charge of the suitcase on the night uh, before Prince Philip's funeral went round the back so nobody on the gates could see them going in with it. <sighs> I better go home and drink all this wine now. Well, from an off-licence takeout to drinking in. Sitting outside the, the Plough Inn on the uh, slightly rustic, I'd say, pub beer garden tables. It looks like any other pub, really. It's, uh, what is it, a red brick? Uh, the Plough Inn, it counts the big sign. Beer garden around the back. A string of quite big uh, Union Jack flags strung across the back. You wouldn't necessarily know that this is the Prime Minister's local, but it's a short yomp across the countryside from here to Chequers, the Prime Minister's official residence. And... This was the pub where David Cameron famously left his daughter, Nancy. He once told me that that was perhaps his biggest mistake when he was Prime Minister. The one that worried me the most, obviously, was, was leaving Nancy in the pub because of that one moment, um, you know, you, you do have a total fear about what has happened. But, but um, she was incredibly relaxed about it. She was behind the bar, you know, putting the pints and helping out. <laughs> and still to this day has the cartoon in her bedroom which says you know her, it's her sitting on a bar stool with her head in her hand saying oh my god I don't know what's going to happen I've left my father running the country it's, it's a very good cartoon but the significance of this place goes all the way back to 1974 early 1974 Conservative Prime Minister was up against it there were strikes uh, there were soaring energy prices there were rows over Europe which obviously is impossible to imagine today and Ted Heath decided to call a general election asking the country who governs Britain? But then by the halfway point of the campaign, some of the polls suggested the Tory lead was shrinking. One poll suggested that an 11-point lead was down to just five and a half points uh, after just five days. So, on Sunday, the 17th of February, 1974, King showed that everything was absolutely, totally fine. Ted Heath invited some of his top team to check us for a strategy meeting. And that morning, he came yomping over the countryside with Lord Carrington, his Conservative Party chairman and Energy Secretary, uh, for a little pre-lunch drink here at the Plough Inn in Cadston. And on the way, along this uh, 
I mean, it's very picturesque part of the world. They bumped in totally naturally to local people leaning on their front gate, hoping to chat to the Prime Minister. I mean, it has to be said, it was supposed to be a break, a day off from campaigning. But luckily, somebody remembered to tell the television and newspaper cameraman to make sure the whole thing was recorded. In fact, just right here in the car park, uh, a horse rider spent an hour sitting, waiting to catch a glimpse of the Prime Minister. And he drank half pints of bitter for the photographers. Then he came out here and took yet more questions, more sips of his beer. All well, we've got our problems ahead, and I've been saying this to the country. I've said it at every meeting, it's in our manifesto. But as a result of the change in the world situation, we're going to have difficult times. The Times said he was wearing a heavy blue yachtsman's sweater, while the Telegraph went further claiming he was wearing a couple of sweaters. And he was asked how it was all going. And Heath insisted that the first 10 days have gone extremely well. There won't be any changes of strategy because the issues are absolutely paramount. And the reason that this is somewhere that changed uh, politics was having insisted he would not change strategy. Perhaps he should have done. The Tory campaign struggled afterwards. There was more bad economic news. Enoch Powell, a former Conservative cabinet minister, said he was standing down and suggested people vote Labour instead. And so, on the 28th of February, uh, polling day in 1974, Labour won 14 seats, uh, taking them to 301, just 17 short of a majority, but it meant that they were the biggest party, with Ted Heath's Conservatives down 28 to 297, which meant there was a hung parliament. Harold Wilson became Prime Minister for the second time, and Heath's gamble had failed, which means he might have been better off changing strategy rather than popping down here for half a bitter. Well, all this talk of drink means uh, I think it's probably my turn to go to the bar. Cheers. All of these places come together in planes, trains and toilet doors. So the planes, well, the most significant for me is polling day in 2010, when Nigel Farage was standing as a candidate in Buckingham and decided to go up in a small plane with a UKIP banner fluttering behind. But the banner got caught in the propeller, the plane crashed, and for a brief moment, Nigel Farage thought he was going to die. That he survived surely changed the course of political history. It's hard to argue that the EU referendum would have happened at all without Nigel Farage being around to push for it. So that's the plane. Lots of great political stories involve trains. Andrea Leadsom sitting down with Rachel Sylvester and Acosta at Milton Keynes train station, derailing her hopes of becoming Prime Minister. I was explaining to that journalist, who shall not be named, by me anyway, um, what it was that I didn't want her to write. And therefore I was sort of assuming that she wouldn't write it because I'd asked her not to. But of course, since it was an on-the-record interview, you yeah. don't get to, having set the terms of the interview, you don't then get to change them I'll halfway them through. And that, that was the problem. That is totally on me. You know, it was ridiculous. And to not take anyone else along and to not even record it. Perhaps the most dramatic train story played out in 1830, on a railway line not far from Warrington. But to get there, I had to go by car. Well, let's just pull in over here. That sign says, no parking in front of gate, 24 hour access required. Network well, but um, I think actually after last week, they haven't got any trains in the north, are they? So we should be all right here for five minutes. So let's get out and go and have a look. Now, I have 
read online that it's quite difficult to actually see the spot, despite the fact it's quite an historic moment for politics as well as... Uh, in fact, there's a train there. It's a uh, big moment for politics as well as for the railways. So actually walking over this, this railway bridge here. Quite high walls, can't see anything over. So let's just dash across here. So it was back in 1830, the very first passenger steam railway was being opened. Uh, going from Liverpool to Manchester. Oh, hang on, there's a big sort of trench. <laughs> Jump over that. And it was the first time that a steam passenger railway was going to be uh, open to the public. And so inevitably, you know, all politicians love a PR stunt, a hullabaloo, a grand opening, a ribbon to cut. So they invited all sorts of local dignitaries. Prime Minister the Duke of Wellington was there, cabinet ministers, and as you would expect, local MPs. And the, the train was going from Liverpool, uh, which is what, out uh, west where I am, up, up to Manchester. And on the train, amongst the, uh, the VIPs, was guy called William Huskerson. He was an MP uh, in Liverpool. He had been in the Duke of Wellington's cabinet, but they'd, uh, they'd fallen out and he'd ended up resigning. God, it's quite muddy, actually. <laughs> this sort of field that I'm trudging through. And as the train set off from Liverpool with all the dignitaries on it, there were sort of six or seven other trains sort of shooting up and down the railway line to sort of show off the power, the might of this new this new uh, steam railway, which is going to transform life in uh, Britain. And not long after they'd set off, the train stopped right about where I am now. It was, a, it was then called uh, Parkside. It's just in the, the village of Newton-on-the-Willows. And William Huskerson, um, with some other passengers, got off. They were told not to, uh, but he got off anyway. Then a cry went up that a third train was coming down. That was Stevenson's rocket. And people who'd got off of the train and William Huskerson had got off the train because he'd hoped to go and uh, shake the hands of uh, the Duke of Wellington to try and make peace with the Prime Minister in the hope of some sort of political comeback. Instead, in the melee, William Huskerson, who was an accident-prone man at the best of times, tried to get back on the train, dithered, panicked, then clung to the carriage door, which then swung out. He lost his balance and fell. And as he fell onto the tracks, as Stevenson's rocket was approaching... He tried to wriggle to safety, but in doing so, actually managed to make things worse. He somehow bent his left leg, so it crossed the track twice, which meant that Stevenson's rocket went over both his calf and his thigh. And a blood-curdling scream cut through the, the late morning air here in the... this beautiful, beautiful bit of countryside. He was heard to shout, This is my death, as he was taken away for medical treatment. And he wasn't wrong. It was several hours later that he was pronounced dead in Manchester at about nine o'clock at night. But the train remained here with the Prime Minister and his cabinet and train station bosses still on it. And an argument ensued about what should be done. The Prime Minister, the Duke of Wellington, wanted to cancel the whole thing, not head on to Manchester. The railway bosses were concerned this might not be the best advert for the railways if the very first steam passenger railway to Manchester should be cancelled due to a fatality. In the end, the railway men won the day and the train did continue on to Manchester. Now, what's really interesting about William Huskerson is no one would describe him as a great political giant. His imprint on political history is very light. 
But he served under the five different Prime Ministers, Pitt, Godrick, Wellington, Canning and Liverpool. Now, what's interesting, there had been rumours he might have been on his way back, that the Duke of Wellington was considering bringing Huskisson and others back into the Cabinet. So maybe there would have been another act to his political career had he not died on this railway line in front of me. Now, what's extraordinary is that perhaps his biggest legacy was the one he had on the railways. The publicity surrounding the accident here in Newton on the Willows meant that many more people heard about this new, cheap, fast form of transport and were, frankly, undeterred by the small matter of an early fatality. Half a million people travelled on the Liverpool and Manchester line in its first year. And passengers have been claiming about services ever since, while politicians, of course, get the blame for the delays and cancellations which beset that very first day of the railway. But I'm walking a a bit further along the line. There's a slight clearing. There's a gap in the hedge so I can see through the railings. There is a sort of monument erected to William Huskisson. But what's so frustrating about it is that it's across the railway line. You can't get to it. Um, But as I understand it, the... The plaque at the back is a sort of square, sort of monolith thing with a white archway almost and an inset uh, panel, uh, a tribute to William Huskisson. And the inscription on that monument reads, A mark of personal respect and affection has been placed here to mark the spot where on the 15th of September 1830, at the opening of the railroad, the Right Honourable William Huskisson MP singled out by an inscrutable providence from the midst of the distinguished multitude that surrounded him in the full pride of his talents and perfection of his usefulness met with the accident that occasioned his death which deprived England of an illustrious statesman and Liverpool of its honoured representative which changed a moment of noblest exaltation and triumph that science and genius had ever achieved into one of desolation and mourning, and striking terror into the hearts of assembled thousands, brought home to every bosom for the forgotten truth that, in the midst of life, we are in death. And just at that moment, a train goes by, which seems pretty fitting. But I better trudge back to the car... So our tour might continue. And finally then, to the toilet door. And I should acknowledge that as soon as I started compiling this list of places that changed British politics, one location kept being suggested. Granita. The North London restaurant is where Tony Blair and Gordon Brown supposedly sealed the deal, which would see Gordon Brown stand aside so that Tony Blair could become Labour leader. It is time for you to go and let the future rest with those that have the courage to face it. And we have that courage in this party. The problem was, everyone I spoke to said Granita was not all that. The deal had been done before. It doesn't even feature in Tony Blair's memoirs. For this, we have to go back to the days after the death of Labour leader John Smith in 1994. All the key discussions that happened during that time took place at the homes of Tony Blair's friends and family. You could see which way the wind was blowing. And on one particular night, Tony Blair was alone in the front room of the Edinburgh home of his old school friend, Nick Ryden. 
Nick Risen had gone to the pub, leaving Blair and Brown with a bottle of whiskey and a takeaway menu. Tony Blair sat and waited, and waited, and waited. He jumped as the telephone began to ring. It not being his house, he let the answering machine take it. Tony, a voice boomed from the box in the corner. It's Gordon here. At this, Blair was a little freaked out. I'm upstairs in the toilet, and I can't get out. Nick Ryder was a property developer. It was in the process of doing up this big house in a posh suburb of Edinburgh. A new door on the bathroom had not had its inside handle fitted. Gordon Brown's cries for help had gone unanswered. For more than 15 minutes, he'd been using his big brick of a mobile to call round friends and colleagues to get hold of Nick Ryden's landline number. Tony Blair didn't have a mobile and wouldn't get one until after he left Downing Street. When Blair finally climbed the stairs to rescue his colleague, he had an ultimatum, shouting through the door, withdraw from the contest or I'm leaving you in there. And thus, history was made. I once asked Tony Blair, more than 25 years after Nick Ryden's toilet and granita and all of that, if he wished with hindsight that he tried to sort out the relationship with Gordon Brown properly before going into government. I don't think it was sortable in the end because it was it was born of a, I mean, you know, of, of what was a very difficult passage when John Smith died and then I became leader. But certainly at that stage, whatever difficulties there were, were more than compensated by the enormous contribution that Gordon made. And, you know, the fact that he was there as a huge figure and carrier of a message and with, with the capability also of impressing people completely independently of my position, you know, that was enormously important. But I think the, the essence of the problem was never, never really changed. Perhaps in the end, he should have left him in the toilet. And that's just a selection of my 50 places that change British politics. Planes, trains and toilet doors is out now. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.